So in my humble opinion, there has been no single event in the history of the universe that has been more greatly underrecognized and underappreciated than the baptism of Jesus Christ. For, for many churches, we have these, we have these special times set apart, right, rightly so, these special times set apart where we recognize our, our Savior's birth, His death, His resurrection, but, but for many of us, there's very little time spent thinking about what happened there in the waters of the Jordan River and, and all that it represented. And yet, God in His incredible providence and, and sovereignty, I didn't know this last week until my wife brought it to my attention on Monday. I didn't, I didn't know this until she, until she mentioned it, but last Sunday was the first Lord's Day after Epiphany. So on, on January 6th in the church calendar, it, it's called Epiphany. It's, a, it's an opportunity to look backwards and celebrate the fact that the Magi had come to celebrate Jesus, to worship Jesus as the Christ child. Opportunity to celebrate the fact that salvation had come not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And then the first Sunday after Epiphany, they, they celebrate that thing which happened 30, some 30 years later at Jesus' baptism. So that while we were gathered together in here, reading and studying and celebrating the baptism of Christ. I didn't pick this. We just picked up Mark because we were done with the other book. And yet God in his sovereignty and in his providence, he brought us to that exact point while brothers and sisters all around the world were celebrating that very same thing. I told you, baptism is a thing that is meant to unite. Not just to unite us to Christ, but to unite us to each other. I'm so incredible, thank, incredibly thankful that God is, is so beyond us, working in spite of us sometimes, just the, the greatness of, of what it is that he does. And so we return there to the Jordan River this morning. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we read once again from the first chapter in Mark. I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. All God's people said, amen. amen. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled this, uh, this week's sermon. I'm, I'm real original with my, with my sermon titles. What I do is I look in my Bible... Usually somebody that's gone before me, the translators, they, they, they put some title at the top of a paragraph, and then I throw it up on the screen. That's how I come up with my sermon titles. I don't have a lot of time in the week to waste coming up with a catchy sermon title. Y'all don't care anyway. So this week, I've titled this sermon, The Temptation of Jesus. We ain't getting there. We're going to be stuck on what happens in that water. So next week is going to be The Temptation of Jesus, part two. <laughs> so this morning, we, we, we look backwards to what it is that Jesus Jesus did there in, the, in those waters. Um, we learn that despite his infinite perfection, his absolute sinlessness and, and, and righteousness, that Jesus 
came there to the Jordan River to be baptized by his relative John the Baptist to take upon himself this baptism for repentance. He that knew no sin, he that had nothing to repent of, came out in, in, in the sight of public people to be baptized there in those waters, those waters that had been made filthy by the sins of penitent Jews that had gone before him. We talked about just the wonder that the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, would allow those waters made filthy by the sins of men that had come before him to just wash over his body. At the same time, he wasn't just showing an association and, and, a, and a communion with the sinners that would turn in repentance towards him. He wasn't just illustrating that he would take that sin upon himself. He was also prefiguring his death, showing not just the fact that he would take away the sins of the world, but the way in which he would do that looking forward to his death on the cross and to his resurrection. And so we, we discovered that as, as we did this, as we, as we looked to this water which leads to the cross, we recognized all that Jesus had done there, that we then, those that have been called to faith, by the working of the Holy Spirit that have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, those that have been born again, those that have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, those that have been filled with the Holy Spirit, it is right and it is good and it is appropriate for us too to go into these waters. Not only confessing to the world that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Not only announcing to the world that we have trusted in this Jesus Christ. Not only taking that covenant sign upon ourselves, But that for those of us that come in faith. Those of us that have been given the gift of faith. And those of us that come into that water in faith. That he will meet us there. He can do an act through physical water over our physical bodies. That by the work of the Spirit. Not the work of the work. Not the work of the water, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, he can do a work, a strengthening work, an encouraging work, a sanctifying work, not just in the one going beneath the water, but in the guy doing it, in the believers there that are observing it. And so it was my prayer then, it's my prayer this morning that you left this place with an elevated view, an elevated view of baptism. I don't know when our next baptism is going to be. We've got some people on the books, but that the next time we gather together to baptize, it's going to be more special than it's been perhaps in the past. It's going to be something sweeter and deeper and, and more meaningful for you. So we read, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So immediately when he comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens being torn open. Now, the, the, the way in which Mark and Luke and, and, and Matthew talk about this, it makes it seem like only Jesus was seeing what's happening there with the tearing of, of heavens. That would make sense because typically it's only one person. When you read through Scripture, these times when someone's allowed to, to peek into heaven, to see into heaven, it's typically one person amidst many who don't always know what's going on. And the word that he uses here, he uses this word, torn open. Schizo is the, is the Greek word. And Mark uses this word one other place. It's towards the end of his gospel. He uses it in Mark 15, 37 through 39. And Jesus, this is at the time of Jesus' death. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain that had, had symbolized the separation between God and sinful man. This was a big thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a 60 foot by 30 foot curtain, if I understand correctly. Somewhere between three and five inches thick. And depending on the kind of material it was made of, people smarter than me say it was anywhere between four and six tons in weight. What noise must that have made? The tearing of this giant curtain, this monumental barrier between God and man, between sinful hands and a righteous God. 
a thing put there to protect men lest they come unworthily into the presence of God and die. And yet Jesus at his death has the thing torn in two, ripped in two. That's the same word. That's the same kind of tearing that we read here as Jesus looks into heaven. And now, as I mentioned, there's a number of times where we see people given glimpses of heaven. There's the prophet Ezekiel there in Babylon at the Shabar River. He, he, he's allowed to, to have a glimpse into heaven where he, where he sees where he sees God there. We think about Stephen, the first Christian martyr mentioned in Scripture as he's, as he's being stoned to death and he, he, he's able to see the, the, the risen, the resurrected Jesus Christ there at the right hand, of the, the, right hand of, the, of the Father. We think about John there on the Isle of Patmos. While he didn't see visibly into heaven, he, was, he, he did have a vision in which he was able to see what, what it is that goes on there in the heavenly realms. And with each of these, sometimes they give us they give us some imagery. Sometimes they use human language to try to tell us what it is. Sometimes, like in the case of Jesus, they don't tell us anything. We don't know what he saw. We don't know what he saw there. And so we have this temptation to try to think, okay, well, what must it have been like for Jesus? Jesus came from heaven, and now he's here on earth, and he's surrounded by sin, and he's surrounded by sinners, and now he's seeing back towards his home, that place that he left. We left all, rich, all richness to come and become poor. And, and what I find as I wrestle with these things is... I, I think at times I underestimate how badly sin takes our, our sight. I, th I think I look at Jesus and I go, well, what must have Jesus felt when, forgetting, he knew no sin. Take apart the fact that he was the son of God. Ignore the fact that he was the eternal son of God. Just the fact that he knew no sin, that his sight, that his emotions, that none of who he was, was tainted by human sin the way that ours are. So we can't rightly, we can't rightly interpret exactly what it was that Jesus said, and so Scripture doesn't bother to tell us. But it then goes on to say that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Matthew and Luke use the very same language, that the Spirit descends upon him, remains upon him like a dove. John gave us a little bit more, a little bit more text when he wrote about it in his, uh, in his gospel. We read this. These are the words of John the Baptist in John's gospel. I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. This is how John could say with so much confidence, behold, the lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. Because when the Father had sent him out, when God had sent him out to do this baptizing work, he had told him that exactly this thing would happen. It's the one that you see the Spirit descend upon, you will know that that is the one. Remember now, we know things that people in the story don't know. And so the people there, they would not have necessarily been aware of the words that God had said to John before he sent him out to baptize. But here's what they did know. They were familiar with the idea of God's Spirit coming upon certain people at certain times for certain tasks. We read about it all throughout the Old Testament, this, this, this picture of God's Spirit coming upon people. And so we, we, we read here that it came upon him like a dove. And so if, if, for many churches, they, they associate the Holy Spirit now as, as being like a dove. I went into my browser this week. I typed in Holy Spirit, clicked on images, nothing but white doves. And you don't see anywhere else in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is referred to as a dove or even necessarily in the, in the form of a dove. There's, there's people that say, well, it's, it's tied to, like, like when Noah's Ark, you know, he sends out the dove and it's an evidence of peace, that God, God loves man and that God has not, not destroyed man. And I don't know that any of that is wrong necessarily, but as I read this text, it, it, it appears to me that he's talking about the way in which the Spirit descended, right? It descended like a dove descends. It, it draws my mind back to the story of creation and the, and the Holy Spirit, right, hovering over the, over the waters. 
that, this, that, this, that the Holy Spirit was lightly setting down, that it was coming upon Jesus, and that at that time Jesus was anointed. And again, even if they hadn't heard the words that God had spoken to John the Baptist, many believing Jews, people that knew their Old Testament, they would have understood this is a special work, but they've seen it before. King Saul, for instance, 1 Samuel 10.10, 10, he's going to be called to be the, to be the the chosen king of Israel. And so the prophet Samuel comes and he anoints him with oil and he, and he, and he kisses his face. And in 1 Samuel 10.10, 10, we read this. When they came, came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. So if the spirit of God would come upon Saul because Saul was called to an act that he couldn't do. Saul didn't have the ability to prophesy in his own power. And so the spirit of God would come upon him and immediately he began speaking the word of God. We read about it throughout the book of Judges. There's a man named Othniel. We read about him in Judges 3.10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. That's Othniel. And he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishthamam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. So neither Israel nor this Othniel had the ability to overcome the king of Mesopotamia. And so God would send his Spirit upon him to equip him, to empower him. God would do his work by his Spirit through some ordinary dudes. We look about the life of Joshua. Numbers 27, 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand upon him. Again, God was going to call this man named Joshua to a mighty work that he was not capable of doing apart from the spirit of God. God would do God's work through his spirit upon a man. That he would send him upon this man. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, what we also come to see is that while God does pour out his spirit in measure, a portion upon men and women, at the same time, he is willing to withdraw his spirit. They got often throughout the Old Testament, he showed his pleasure or displeasure with men by bringing his presence, by coming in his presence before men or withdrawing. We see that again in the life of uh, uh, King Saul and then King David. 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 14, Saul has disobeyed God. God has told him that the, that the kingdom will not remain with his family forever and that he's chosen another, this man named David. So 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 14, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. This is David now in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Then Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful Spirit of the Lord tormented him. But you see here that God's Spirit would not remain forever upon this man, that because he had disobeyed, because he had dishonored, because he had refused to do the things that God had called, that he would remove his Spirit from him. And so this would have left, while God's people would have been familiar with the Spirit of God coming upon his people in an appointed time for an appointed purpose, specific people special people chosen of God this would have left them with a longing they would have looked forward for a time when God's spirit would have come upon all men not just special men not just chosen men not just judges not just saviors not just priests not just prophets not just kings but all of God's people could receive the Holy Spirit and that it would remain there upon him that was part of the covenant that was part of the new covenant that was promised we read about it in Joel 2 28 through 29 and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my servant, my spirit on all men, all women, all children, all servants, that all that are his are going to receive the spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27 talked about some of what's going to happen as a result of that. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's people knew that they desperately wanted a spirit upon them. They knew that they have God's, God's presence dwelling here on earth. And they knew that they have his spirit within them. And they knew that for him to not to remove that spirit, that that was something they longed for. 
to a great degree. And yet, God also made clear that this spirit was going to come in a special way. If you, if you read the book of Isaiah, a prophet that came some 700 years before Christ, he looked forward to a time when God was going to send this eternal king, and that this eternal king was going to be the one through whom the spirit was going to be poured out on all men. That the spirit was going to come upon him to anoint him, and then through him that spirit would come. And that this, that this king, though, while he was going to be the eternal king, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, he would also be a suffering servant, a man of great sorrows. And so I'll read to you a couple of those passages. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. There shall come forth from the shoot of the stump of uh, Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah tw uh, 42, 1. Behold my servant who, I'm uphold, who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Or Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to opening of the prisons to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord to comfort all who mourn. It was this passage that Jesus recited there in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. You remember this? The place in which they wouldn't recognize him. He, as, he, as he opened up this scroll and he read those exact words, he sat down. He said, now, within your hearing, this thing has come true. I'm the one. I'm the anointed one. I'm the Christ. I'm the eternal king. I'm the suffering servant. I'm the man of sorrows. It's going to be through me that the Holy Spirit will come. It's going to be through me that you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So what we see here at the waters with this baptism is not just the baptism. It's not just the, 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 it's not just the association with sinners. It's not just the prefiguring of his death. It's a coronation. It's the coronation of the eternal king. And unlike coronations before this, where they were anointed merely with oil, as the scripture tells us, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And unlike those that received the Holy Spirit in measure, Jesus would receive the Holy Spirit without measure. So Jesus, anointed with the Holy Spirit, now prepared to do the thing that God's called him to do. So here's the question. Here's the question. It's right to ask this question. If Jesus is God, why does he need to receive the Holy Spirit? Isn't this just God pouring out God upon God? I'm so glad that you asked because it shows me that you're thinking rightly. It shows me that you've embraced that theology is not just a thing to be done by fancy dudes in monocles and ivory towers. That the way in which you think about God has incredible weight in your life. The way you speak about God, the way you think about God, the way you wrestle with God is absolutely fundamental to your walk. And so the question is, why was it necessary for the Holy Spirit to come upon Jesus? And so I need to make sure we're all on the same page here. Number one, no man that's ever walked the earth fully understands the incarnation. None. Men much smarter than you, much smarter than me. They have wrestled with this thing for 2,000 years. The idea that the Son of God would come and become flesh. It's the greatest of all miracles. Think about it now. Think about all the miracles that you find in Scripture. Jesus walking on water, turning water into wine, healing the sick, even raising the dead. I can't do those things. Certainly, I can't do those things. And I don't, I, oftentimes I struggle to fully understand exactly what it is that God was doing in that mess. But it doesn't twist my head up in knots. I mean, look, if God is the God of creation, if God is the God of the universe, if God has made everything that is, then there is absolutely nothing that is off limits to him. There's, it's nothing for him to twist the law. It's nothing for him to... to I'm sorry, I'm really distracted right now. 
if God is the God of the universe, and he, is, he has created everything that is, he is the God that is outside and above and beyond and great, greater than, it is absolutely nothing for him to move, to shift, to change the way in which this world relates. I've known, about these, I've known about these miracles for all my life and never at any point within my life was I staying up at night trying to understand how these things work. And yet with the incarnation, I have zero problem with understanding that the God of the universe can twist the universe, can use the universe, can overcome natural laws to do the things that he wants to do. And yet to understand what it is that happened at the incarnation, the Son of God becoming flesh, it blows my mind and men much smarter than me as I've said. And so before we dive into these waters, I think that I need to prepare you, number one, to say... I, you must be willing to walk out of this place without this thing wrapped up in a nice bow. You've got to be willing to walk out of this place and say, I just don't get it. And that's okay. That there's value in the struggle. There's value in the wrestling. There's value in this coming to God's word and saying, God, reveal to me what you can. I've told you this before and I'll tell you it again. God is not a puzzle to be solved. He's a mystery to behold. They were to look at him with great mystery, great wonder, great awe, great reverence. But you will never put him in a box and put him on your shelf and say, okay, got that one figured out. Like mathematics or riding a bike. You will never come to the end of the understanding of exactly who it is that God is. In fact, so many men have stumbled into great heresy because they've tried to do exactly this. They've tried to wrap their minds around who God is. They've tried to take the great big God of the universe and they've tried to compress him into something that their sinful minds can handle. That their finite man's, minds can handle. In fact, one of the greatest heresies that revolves around this story is one that perseveres to this day. Is the idea that Jesus was just a normal dude. Jesus was just a normal guy, but a super swell guy. In fact, he was such a good dude, he honored God so fully that at his baptism, God said, you know what, I'm going to make you God today. That he was a normal dude that became God at the moment of his baptism. And so because that seems to be the primary heresy which revolves around this, I think we should start there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that was made was made through Him and there was not anything made that was not made through Him. This is why Jesus can say before Abraham was, I am. That's why He can say, if you have seen the Father, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father am one. That Jesus has eternally and always been God. Fully God. All-powerful. All-knowing. All present, outside of time, transcendent, outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter. That there's anything that you could say about God the Father, you could say about God the Son. Co-equal of the same substance, of the same nature, of the same being. Not a lesser God, not a minor God, not one that later became God. That he is infinitely and totally God. We talked about this at the start of Mark. That God is one, but God is three. Equally existing as three. Three persons, one God. And at the same time, at the appointed time, at the proper time, God saw fit because of his love for us to send his son. To send this one that had always been God, that he would then become flesh. That he would become man, fully man. Just as much as he was fully God, he would become fully man. This all throughout scripture, Luke 2, 7. We see that he's a baby that needed to be, that needed to be swaddled and nursed and he cried when he was sad. That he was a boy. Luke, uh, Luke 2.40, that he was a boy that grew in wisdom and knowledge and favor. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, that he grew in obedience because of his suffering. John 19.28, that he thirsted when he went without water. Matthew 4, 2, that he hungered when he went without food. Luke 23.46, that his body grew weak. John 4.6, that he slept after long days of teaching and traveling. Luke 23.46, that when he hung on a cross and was beaten, he died. Every bit of man, just as you and I, with a fully human body, fully human needs. But man is more than a body. 
We're more than a shell. Man is soul. The same Jesus in John 12, 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. This Jesus, this wasn't God hiding in a, in a suit of flesh. This wasn't God just trying to blend in by coming and putting on a suit of humanity. He was fully human. He had a fully human will, separate from his divine will. This is why he was able there in the garden to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He had a fully human will separate from his divine will. Don't gloss over this, church. You need to understand this. This Jesus, being fully God, he had a perfectly divine will, completely one with the Father, completely in unison with the Father. Yet at the same time, he had a human will that said, this ain't going to be fun, and I don't want to do it. So if there's another way, Father, would you please show me that other way? He had a perfectly infinite mind of God. He was God, eternally God, infinitely God. There was nothing that was outside his mind. All wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding. He wasn't growing in his wisdom. He wasn't growing in his understanding. He had the mind of God and the mind of a man that he had to learn, that he had to grow. That he could say, I don't know when I'm coming back. That's only for the Father to know. And yet he knew it's God. That he had perfectly human emotions. That he could look upon Jerusalem and weep with sorrow with the coming destruction. That he could be angry at what people had done to his father's house. Guys, I want you to know that we prayed before we came in here that God would minimize distractions. Satan is a He's a liar. Hundred percent God, hundred percent man in one person, in one person, Jesus Christ. And I don't understand it. None of us understand it. How does this happen? There's nothing else in all creation that's like this. None of it. That that, that Jesus, the one who holds all things together. The one that created all that is, and by his hand, all things are held together. If he chose to stop, the stars would fall out of the sky. The moon would fall upon us. Actually, it wouldn't fall upon us because we wouldn't be here. We would just cease to be. All things would cease to be if he ceased his activity as God. And yet, at the same time, he had to walk six days to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. (laughs) It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And so in October of 451 A.D., a large church council, they gathered together, and they determined, you know, there's, there's great heresy going on here. There's people that are really struggling to comprehend this. And so we need to try and come up with a, they were in a place called uh, Chalcedon in, um, just, just south of Constantinople, current day Istanbul. And so he said, you know, we, we, need to, we need to help put together a definition for who this Jesus is and help people try to comprehend this. And so this is a long text. I get it. It's hard. I get it. It's in your bulletin. Take it home. This isn't scripture. You don't need to memorize it. It's not a bad thing to memorize. I'm not telling you you need to memorize it. I'm not telling you that it's, that, it's, um, uh, that it's infallible. I'm not telling you that it's inerrant. This is not scripture. But these dudes are smarter than me, and I think they get, think they get a whole lot closer to putting into words that we can understand how this happens. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to manhood, and all things likened to us without sin, begotten before all ages and of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born to the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. What they're saying is this, that when these two natures came together, they were unified, they were joined together in this one person named Jesus. It didn't change either nature. There was no division among the nature. There was no change. There was no modification. There was no loss. There was no lack. So that when you could take the perfect nature of God and join it with the nature of man, that there's no change. I don't know how you do that. How do you take 100% water, mix it with 100% vinegar, and make 100% water and 100% vinegar? That's exactly what God did. That there was no change. He was an equal substance with the Father. Same being, same substance, same nature with the Father. At the same time, 100% same nature with man. This doesn't hurt, hurt your head. I don't know what will. If you think you got this figured out, you're deceived. This is incredible stuff that God has done here. That this man would come from heaven. Becoming man, fully man, the God man, Jesus Christ. But that still hasn't answered our question. Okay, so Great. He's fully God and he's fully man. Why does the Spirit come upon him then? What's the point? I think we find part of the answer in Philippians 2.7. Philippians 2.7 says this, Having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was in the form of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. What does it mean for, God, for Jesus to empty himself? What does it mean to refuse to grasp equality with God? For this man that is fully God, 100% God, just as much God as the Father is God, anything you say about God, you say about Jesus. What does it mean then for him to empty himself? What does it mean for him to refuse to grasp? Here's what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that he emptied himself of deity. It cannot mean that he emptied himself of his divine nature. God can't cease to be God. God cannot decrease in being God. God is God for all eternity, or he's not God. To be God means you are always God and you will always be God. In this moment, you are God. So absolutely, it cannot mean that he was giving up his nature as God. That's why throughout his ministry, people would continue to honor him as God. You think about Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, or Peter saying, you're the Christ, the Son of God. That's why he's able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Over and over again, even while he walked this earth in this human body, in this human form, with humanity upon himself, he could still say, I am God. So it can't mean that. But let's think about context here. What was happening in the book of Philippians? Paul is writing to this church and he's telling them, guys, quit putting yourself first. Quit putting yourself first. Look to our Savior. Look to the suffering servant. Look to the man of sorrows. Look to him. Look at his humility. Look at him that didn't grasp equality with God, even though he was God. How he laid that down in humility and in service. How he thought others greater than himself. How he, how he was willing to be submitted lower than angels for a time. He's talking here about humility. He's talking about a humbling of himself. And 
If you listen to the way that Jesus talked about the works that he did, John 5, 19. Look at the way that Jesus talked about his earthly ministry. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Or John 6, 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Aha, so Jesus is God, fully God, always God, infinitely God. The ability to do absolutely anything he wants, perfect mind, perfect will, all the power. Yet at the same time, he was willing to submit. He was willing to empty. He was willing to, to humble himself to such a degree that he said, I will not do anything but what the Father wills. And I will not do anything except what the Spirit empowers. Essentially what he's saying here is, I refuse. What I'm doing here, what I'm emptying myself is, my rights, my prerogative to be honored and worshiped and glorified as God. And to act in any way that would detract from the glory of God. To act in any way apart from what the Father enables me to do. The words that he speaks, the actions that he wills, all those things. And so you think then, okay, well, so what, what's, what's happening at the baptism then? We see Jesus announcing to the world at this moment of his coronation, right? We see him condescending to become man. We see him, again, this wasn't happening at this moment. He had done this at the moment of his incarnation, but this was his, his public announcement that these things had happened, that he was emptying, emptying himself, refusing even as God to be glorified, to be treated, to be honored, to act in his deity. He was submitting in every way like this. And then you think about, okay, well, what are the things that he came to do? He came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to usher in the kingdom of God. He came to heal. He came to raise the dead. He came to do all these miraculous things. Who can do those things? Only God. He's God, but he's not going to act as God. <laughs> Golly, those are some blank looks. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but th this, is, th this makes your brain hurt, right? How then salvation? How then salvation? If the things that he came to do, only God could do. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to refuse my prerogative. I'm going to set aside my rights to be honored and treated as God. I'm only going to do the things that the Father wills. What has to happen then? God has to act. How does God act? The same way he's always acted, by his Spirit. It's always by his Spirit. And so you look at the life of Jesus, you see the Spirit all over the place. At the, uh, when he was conceived, Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power, he's talking to Mary, his mother, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is in part, this is how the sin nature was not transferred to Jesus, that original sin, that sinful nature that you and I have, but it's because the Holy Spirit was the one that came upon Mary. That's the way in which Jesus was conceived, but again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come upon Jesus at his baptism for the first time. That's the way he was conceived. John the Baptist, it says that he received the Holy Spirit within his mother's womb. Jesus at conception, it's saying here, he was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about his great miracles. All the miracles that he did, the healing, the walking on water, the raising of the dead, the casting out of spirits, the people came against him and they said, look, you're doing the work of Beelzebub. This must be demons within you. This must be Satan's work that you're doing. And how did he reply? Matthew 12, 31 through 32. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And he accuses them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say you're blaspheming me, does he? He said you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit that I do all these works that you now attribute to Beelzebub. Think about his death, even his death. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 says this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who 
through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purified our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. So what he's saying here is, look, it was by the spirit of God that I offer myself in death, or his resurrection, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see this, right? You see this. It was by the Holy Spirit that God did these things that Jesus refused when he set aside, when he emptied himself, when he gave up his prerogative to be honored, to be treated as God, in order to do the things that God was going to do here, he did it through the Holy Spirit. At the same time that when Jesus came, he needed to fully represent man. He needed to live a life of a man. It was only a man that could pay for the sins of man. He's the only man that could live this perfectly righteous life. And so it was. It was through the acts of the Holy Spirit. So there's a guy in the 17th century, a Puritan guy named John Owen, and he, he wraps it up like this. The only singular immediate act of the person of the Son on his human nature was the assumption of it into his substance with himself. The Holy Spirit is the immediate effective cause of all external divine operations, and hence, he is the immediate operator of all divine acts of the Son himself. Even on his own human nature, whenever the Son of God wrought in, by, or upon human nature, he did it by the Holy Spirit. Guys, I, I, I cannot overstate this. I cannot overstate what it is that happened here in this moment. That when Jesus refused to grasp his deity, when he refused to grasp his honor, when he refused to grasp his glory, he never stopped to be God. He never emptied himself of deity. He never failed to be God. He never lost any bit of his godness. And yet at the same time, in obedience to the Father and in love to man, I, th I want you to think about what this life looks like. You know, we, we talk about how he that was rich became poor, and I think we, we get it twisted into thinking, well, he was born into a poor family and not into a kingly family. No, you don't understand the poorness of earth compared to the richness of heaven. He was in a place where he was worshipped, and he was honored, and he was glorified, and he left that place. He says, I will not be honored in this place. I will not be glorified. Only in glimpses do we see that glory. Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, I was reading that text this morning. As he goes up there, and we see a, just a glimpse of his glory for a time, for a moment. And yet he, he willingly emptied himself and set that aside for a time. That he would come and be a suffering servant. That he would suffer as fully man as well as fully God within this, within this one person. That he was a king that came to be... He was a king that, that came to this moment of his coronation, this eternal king that came to usher in the kingdom of God, and yet at the same time, there was a prince already here, an illegitimate king, Satan, that he would oppose him, he would oppress him, he would come against him, and yet they all knew, right? Jesus knew, Satan knew, the demons knew, the angels knew, some of the disciples knew. They all knew he was God. They all knew all he had to do at any moment was look at Satan and just say a word, and he'd throw the dog into hell. Destroy him with just a word. At the same time, he didn't do that. He said, that's not the way that salvation is going to come. It's going to come through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is why the Holy Spirit came upon him. And I need you to understand that this is the way that God has always acted. This wasn't something unique. This wasn't something new about the way in which the Godhead interacted with himself. The God that is Trinity, the triune God, the Trinitarian God, he's always acted in this way. Think with me about creation. What happened in creation? God the Father, through the Word. Who was the Word? Jesus Christ, through the word, by who? The spirit. Think about your prayer. What are you doing? All things coming from God and to God. You're praying to the Father. Through who? In the name of who? Jesus Christ, by who? Who gives you words when you don't have words? Who speaks from the groanings of your heart? Think about even your salvation. How are you saved? It's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. 
That this is the way the Trinitarian God has worked. This is the way he's working. He's showing it in this fullness of revelation in the life of his son, Jesus Christ. From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. The Spirit is the means. The Spirit is the way. Listen to Ephesians 2.18. For through him, this is Jesus, for through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. The very access we have to God is through Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, I hope this is an incredible encouragement to you. The very same God that works in the very same way that he has always acted for all eternity, the very same way that he acted in the life of Jesus Christ, that is the way he has called you to salvation. That is the way that you can pray to him. That is the way that he will empower you. You're not Jesus. You will never attain to deity. And yet at the same time, God has poured out this spirit through his son upon those that believe. That's why he says that you should look to the son and act like the son because that spirit comes upon you, gives you ability to honor, to obey, to to work. That's why Jesus was able to look to his disciples and say, you'll do miracles even greater than these. How? You're not God, but the Spirit's upon them. I feel so insufficient. I feel exhausted and I feel insufficient. Like, like you know when you're, when you're trying to... You ever been in one of those money chambers? Or, or like a ticket chamber, like a Chuck E. Cheese or something. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're standing in this, in this big glass tunnel and there's money blowing up or there's tickets blowing up and you're trying to grab them, you know? I don't know what the proper way to do that is yet, right? Like do you just do this and try to grab them? Do you pick individual ones? What do you do? But you're always, they're just slipping through your fingers and you're, you're panicking and you're whatever. That's what this feels like. But guys, this is so critical, okay? This is so very critical, the one that we claim to follow, the one through whom salvation comes, that he has revealed himself. And as hard as this stuff makes our head hurt, and as terrifying as it is, and as insufficient as we feel, and just inadequate as we feel as we grasp for these things, God has promised that in that struggle, if we come to him with a sincere heart, a heart of faith, a desire to know him, a desire to see him, a desire that we wouldn't read ourselves into his word, that we would allow his word to read into our lives, understanding that, number one, that may call for some tremendous changes. And number two, we're going to get to the end of our knowledge real stinking quick. But that in that humility, in that posture of faith, and in that posture that says, God, I don't know you, I don't have it all figured out, but I want to know you so badly. But Father, just, just give me what you can. Just give me a morsel today. Just take me one step further, one step deeper, one step higher. Just one step further along, Father, that I could just see your face, that I could paint this picture in my mind of who you are, that I could understand what it was that you did when you took flesh upon yourself, that I could understand how salvation comes, that I could understand what your promises are in eternity, that I could understand how you're going to make sure that I endure to the end, that I'm useful in your kingdom, that I can understand... Why, Father, you could possibly use me to go out and share this gospel? Just, just do these things so I can understand who it's through and who it's by and who it's from, who it's to. And if you could just show me these things, Father, then I'll be okay not knowing everything. I'll be okay not understanding it all. I'll be okay not having a nice bowl around. I don't want a God that I can understand. Just be that God for me. Just, just knock me to my knees. Humble me. I will submit to you, Father, because that is who you are. And I want to know you and I want to live for you and I want to feel you and I want to celebrate you and I want to honor you and I want to worship you and I want all those things to 
to come true in my life, and I don't have to know how my heart works, and I don't have to know how my lungs work, I don't have to know how my eyesight works, but Father, you make all these things, and because they're upon me, my life is so good, and it's so valuable, and it's so worth, I, all these things that you do, I don't have to get it all, Father, but if you're gracious enough to just show me pieces of this, I will worship you more truly, I will see you more clearly, you'll no longer be the God of my imagination that I've created for myself, you'll no longer be the Jesus that makes me comfortable at night, and makes me feel like I'm okay in my sin, just, just bring me to the end of all that, Father, and I promise you, I will fall down on my knees, and I, even, I, even as I make that promise, I know I don't have the ability to fall down on my knees because I'm a selfish jerk, and I just want to do the things that I want to do. Oh, y'all are still here. <laughs> Father God, we love you, and we thank you. Thank you that you are not a God that is like us, you are greater and higher, more powerful and mighty. And yet, Father, you have chosen to reveal yourself. Father, forgive us for the times when we've blasphemed you by just trying to paint you into our image. Father, we know that it's only by your hand that we could know you, and it's only through your work, through your Son, by your Spirit, that we may be saved by you. So, Father, that is my desire. If there's one here this morning that doesn't yet know you, that's not yet trusted you, that's not yet believed in you, that you would do the thing that only you can do. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we trust you. So, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.